Good morning. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to spend time introducing you other than to say that you are one of, if not the world's leading experts on disinformation, and you are here at perhaps the perfect moment for this conversation. Um, uh, help situate us historically. We had pre-consumer internet, we had consumer internet, we had consumer internet with social media, and now we're entering an AI era. From a disinformation researcher perspective, where are we and how bad is it looking? So I, when you said situate, I was actually thinking of like 1300 in the printing press, but we, we can start a couple of centuries ahead. Um, so disinformation just refers to people who are actively trying to manipulate the public perception of events or a phenomenon. Um, it refers very specifically to a deliberate intent to deceive, not something that's accidental, but a very coordinated campaign. And one of the things that, um, that, that we know is that in any technological change, there's a, an adaptation. So you can think about it as a vast playing field. And when you make new tools available, you're going to create affordances for normal, ordinary people to use for good, right? For communication, finding each other, connecting, networking. Um, but the flip side, this is the kind of like tool weapon debate, is that there are then also going to be people who are going to use it for ill. So when we think about disinformation in particular, what's really different and distinct now in the environment that we're in is that anyone can create it. Right? Uh, so previously, propaganda and disinformation were largely the functions of the powerful. That's no longer true. Um, you have state actors in particular that have long used broadcast media for such things. You know, many of them, Russia, China in particular, have vast kind of state propaganda apparatuses that have existed, US too, for you know, decades at this point. But what social media changes is that the message is given from a peer to a peer. So it really is received differently uh, now, in part because it looks like it's coming to you from someone who is just like you, a member of your community. And so it's that kind of manipulation that's why social platforms pay so much attention to the problem of fake accounts and manipulative behavior because they don't want their users to be targeted and manipulated uh, by bad actors who are doing it, again, very intentionally. And yet, you've described it as an, ar as an arms race, right? And, and yet, on, when it comes to the social platforms, at least, the, prolifer the proliferation of disinformation and misinformation often serves their business model. So how, how do you square that? Is it, is it a legitimate arms race? Are they legitimately fighting? It's an interesting question. It's not that disinformation serves their business models. It's high engagement content serves their business models. And the problem is, um, people who are looking to manipulate the public will often use very highly engaging, sensational half-truths, innuendo, conspiracy, sensational. You know, people want to go and find out, oh, what is what is happening here? What is the truth of that? Um, we're also in, you know, it's impossible to divorce the technology from the society. And so we also are in a time of uh, very, very low trust in government and institutions. And there are some very legitimate reasons why trust in institutions and government are so low. But what that does create is um, even more engagement in the social sphere, even more receptivity to, um, to the, the kind of information that people are, are receiving in those very kind of peer-to-peer -peer type channels. And what social media does want to do is keep users on site, keep users feeling engaged. And so this led over time um, to a creation of series of first people being assembled into particular networks. It started with people you may know and algorithms to shape the way who people knew and who they talked to. And then we moved to much more of an interest-based network where it's not who you know or are three degrees separate from, but it becomes much more what are you interested in and who are the other people that are interested in that. And that shift into interest-based 
uh, that's where you start to see the kind of unintended consequences where at times platforms began to recommend and to build networks around interests uh, that then you know kind of veered off into some uh, unfortunate and unexpected areas. So for, for the bad actors, whether they be state actors or, or individuals, how much worse do we think AI is going to make this? Like, sh should we be quaking in our boots here about what's coming? I think, again, to use the metaphor of the playing field, um, you have just introduced a new type of technology. So I'm at Stanford Internet Observatory, and one of the things that we do is we assess whenever there's a new platform that comes into the ecosystem, how do people react to it? TikTok, for example. You know, what, how, how did TikTok change away from the kind of big three models of, uh, of where, yeah, where people connect and how they get their, their information and what content they create? TikTok really significantly shifts things. Um, the creation of what we call sometimes the alt platforms, the sort of right-leaning social media platforms, shifts things. Again, some users kind of migrate in that direction direction. Um, Telegram, again, this is a global ecosystem. This is not, we talk about it in the context of the US culture war a lot, but it's really quite global. Um, when Facebook decides to moderate Russian state media on Facebook, well, they turn to Telegram. When Telegram geofences them, well, they begin to make other domains and use uh, anonymous channels. So you start to see this, um, anytime there is a shift in the ecosystem, the adversary will adapt. We call it regulatory arbitrage, is, is kind of the <laughs> metaphor that we use for it. Um, so when you have AI, or generative text and images and videos specifically, you change the kind of content that can be created, who can create it, how much it costs to create it. And so the real shift comes not so much in um, the novelty of the AI, but in who uses it and how. So again, phenomenal amounts of really excellent applications for people. I use it myself all the time. Um, but then you get at questions like, how do you make your content very persuasive? Well, you might fine tune a model on persuasion type content. Um, how do you reduce the cost of creating content. You don't need to employ quite so many trolls. You might not need to employ English fluent trolls. You might not need to employ culturally competent trolls. Instead, you ask the AI, write this as if you were. And so you can and, and write a content. million versions A million of different and, versions, and A-B tested, test, right. exactly. And so you can move it through the information um, ecosystem a whole lot faster and a, at, you know, for, a, for, for a lot lower cost. So we've kind of written about what those trade-offs are gonna be like. The argument is not that we should be restricting it, it's that we should understand that this is the change that is going to come about as a result of it, and we have time to both educate the public uh, and think about what do, you know, what are, what is in the realm of mitigation space and how do we think about that from a technologically feasible point of view, but also a socially desirable point of view. So let's talk about self-regulation for a second for the, for the platforms. We can hold off on the encrypted messaging apps for a moment, but on, on the social and entertainment platforms, um, we've seen in China that ByteDance, the, the TikTok um, equivalent, uh, they're, they're self-regulating in advance of what they perceive to be Chinese government restrictions coming. Um, in the US, TikTok appears to be opening up lots of data to researchers and what have you. And then we have a counterexample of Twitter, which I think was, was maybe at the front of the platforms and now is basically, you know, like a, a state actor with, with no rules whatsoever. How, how do we think about self-regulation? Is it viable? Is this a solution to the problems we face? It's a really interesting question. So it is very hard. You, you don't want to see the government trying to regulate content. Uh, particularly in the United States, that's not something that, that, is in, that is aligned with our values here. 
Um, the government is not the most technically adept or astute, and trying to regulate algorithms does not work particularly well because by the time anything passes, you know, the, um, the, the sort of frontier has, has changed. Um, but at the same time, the challenge of the self-regulatory model is it is really at the whim of whoever is running the company. And so the, if you believe that one of government's roles is to address unaccountable private power, which has traditionally been the model that we've used in many, many other industries, then the question becomes, what are the ways in which we should be thinking about the regulation of social media apart from the content? Um, there are a couple of different approaches that have been on the table in the United States. There's the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. That's my personal favorite. Um, the reason I like it is because one of the things that we have a hard time with as researchers is actually understanding what is actually harmful versus what is a moral panic. And it is, in my opinion, in the platform's best interests to work with researchers because then we can do these uh, independent assessments of how algorithms nudge people or how influence operations work or does this stuff actually have an impact. When we say the word harm, we can get away from a hand-wavy, vague idea of harm to something where we can say, quantifiably, this is the impact it has on children. This is the impact it has on you know, influence. This is how we should think about these spaces. Um, the other thing with kind of required transparency is it means that we're not at, you know, operating under the goodwill of whoever happens to own the platform. And if the ideology of the owner changes or the owner changes, um, it, it kind of creates a, a persistence as opposed to, right now it's been very interesting, you see a lot of people scrambling to figure out what the Twitter API is going to become for researchers. Uh, it's, it's very unclear. <laughs> uh, and then on the flip side, you have TikTok talking about an API that they're going to have. They're announcing it. They're really, again, it's a very kind of uh, full court press. Look how transparent we're going to be. But interestingly, when you actually kind of get down into the details, it doesn't do anything to help assess the For You page, which is where the majority of the impact of TikTok actually is. So you're seeing researchers kind of push back in public forums saying, this is what we actually need to know. Um, but again, we can only do so much. You prevail upon public opinion um, to try to create that impetus for the platform to do something as opposed to having um, a more structured or permanent or kind of cohesive approach to viewing the unaccountable private power of a platform as something that we as a society should have interest in understanding. Right, and so in a world where most of the public is more concerned about gas and milk and egg prices than you know, transparency reports from social platforms, and in a world where, where self-regulation is um, iffy at best, uh, and in some cases just forget about it, it's not going to happen. Um, what, if, if President Biden called you right now and said, Renee, I'm really worried about this, we've got a you know, critical election coming up in a couple of years, I wanna be ahead of it, what should we be doing consistent with the First Amendment to, to mitigate the challenges that are happening right now? It's a, you know, right now, so much of the challenge that we face is that there's such a low degree of trust in government that 50% of the public would automatically think that that indicated that there was like a collusion, you know, a, a collusion regime or a, a government jawboning to take content down. Um, and that's in part because there hasn't been very transparent engagement with the government on what it wants taken down and when. And so you see some platforms do this um, 
pretty well. Google has a, a transparency, a thing where you can see a request comes in for the government, from the government, and governments all over the world. Again, we keep thinking about this in the context of the US culture war, but it is much, much bigger than that. And you can see when a government requests a platform to act, what they did uh, and whether the content came down, went up, and what the response was. I think that that's a really good model for reinstilling trust that when government reaches out, it's because of a particular type of threat. There are certain areas like state actor action or terrorist action where you do see um, value in having some sort of channel of communication there. It's just that, again, we don't see particularly, you know, there's a, there's a lot of both suspicion around it and not a lot of visibility into it. And so that's where I think, um, again, <laughs> just the overall problem of transparency popping back up again. So there's transparency, there's communication. You flagged DC is basically incapable of regulating an algorithm. The, the technological like skill set in Washington alone is problematic, the time it takes. Is there, is there a viable path to government regulation? One of the things that I think is interesting is um, if you have evidence of harm, again, this steps back to the problem that we do not have particularly good evidence, but if you have evidence of harm, you can look at things like the FTC, which its job is consumer protection. Um, and so there are, for example, influencer disclosure laws, which presently are just not really enforced at all. Um, are there ways in which, as influencers become quite prominent in the political conversation, they're not necessarily treated as political advertisers? So what are the ways in which you could even use the existing technology, or sorry, the existing um, kind of regulatory entities to bring to bear the power that they already have in a slightly new environment? There was, I remember back in... Um, 2017 or so, Facebook finally stepped away from arguing that it didn't, it shouldn't put political disclosures on ads. And it was because in the olden days, when Facebook's ads were those little postage stamp sized things on the, you know, kind of right margin of the page, they just made the argument that they should be regulated like pencils or skywriting because it was too hard to put up a disclosure because the form factor was wrong. And that really just kind of held through until massive public sentiment shift after 2016 that said, um, we should have more visibility into who's running ads and how. And this is where you start to see the FEC and others um, rethink what political advertising looks like. But again, the transparency um, impetus of the platform was undertaken as a, as a self-regulatory measure. Okay, we're gonna create an ads tool for people to go and look. Uh, and that was, that was done as a self-regulatory measure. So they can, in fact, just walk it back tomorrow. Uh, most of the social platforms, the major social platforms at this point, want to be seen as kind of good digital citizens. They don't want their platforms to be used for manipulation, but there are then also under-resourced platforms and platforms that choose not to engage or provide transparency or moderate in any way. And what we do see is um, actors kind of rolling and kind of moving around the ecosystem in response to that regulatory arbitrage. So one, one form of regulation is exposing the platforms to civil liability and where the harm is, is actually demonstrated. So we're, we're a week post, give or take, um, a huge Supreme Court argument about Section 230, which I'm going to be really reductive here and say it effectively protects the platforms from, from liability for posts by users that, that are defamatory or cause harm or what have you. Um, it allows them to function, right? Um, uh, case was not particularly well argued. Think it's, it's, it's likely 230 survives. Yeah. 
Um, should, should Congress revisit 230? Is that part of, of what we should be doing here to say the platforms have an affirmative obligation to meaningfully mitigate the dissemination of this harmful disinformation and misinformation? So the Supreme Court cases were specifically looking at terrorism, um, terrorist attacks, and for a long time in the 2014-2015 timeframe, when we were talking about people you may know in the assemblage of networks, it was like the terrorists you may know algorithm, or if you followed one, it pushed you a whole bunch more. Uh, if you engaged with ISIS content, you got a whole lot more. If you watched the videos on YouTube, well, here, you might like. Um, and what was very interesting about it is there are a lot of debates right now around um, what should effective curation look like, because that's really the question here. That's what's really different. It's anybody can create content, but what you are served is very much a function of what a platform algorithm decides you are likely to want to engage with. And there have been arguments that 230 should, you know, 230 protection for recommender system should be rethought. And that's what this case was supposed to interrogate, but it was not, as you know, well argued at all. I do think there's an opportunity to revisit that in a congressional, you know, in, in a congressional setting. Um, but at the same time, the question of what impact do recommender systems have or how they, you know, how are they designed is something where there's very little visibility outside of the platforms themselves. So making that argument is very much depend you know, it's very um, it's still very hand-wavy in the moment around what is a recommendation, what is recommended content, how do we quantify that, and then how do we determine whether a piece of content was recommended or happened because you opted into following a page. That's where this, um, that's where this environment is kind of distinctly different from the one that Section 230 was originally written for, where everything in 1996 or 8, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where everything was just kind of served to you in a chronological feed. It was so, a bulletin board. Exactly. And look, I, I, I ran policy at MySpace in a much, much simpler time. I'm sympathetic to how complex this is, but I'm also struck by the extent to which this is one of the few places there is growing agreement between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill that something has to be done. And having worked on Capitol Hill as well, I'm confident they will do it in a um, well-intended but ham-handed way if industry is not directly involved. So in your mind, what does Section 230 reform look like where government and industry come together to say this is the balance we should strike? There's an um, entity that's come about in the last year, maybe two years, called the Integrity Institute, which is actually a bunch of ex-employees of big tech companies who have worked on design of recommender systems and other things. And what I love about them is, again, as outside researchers like me, um, we have part of the picture they have actually kind of been internal to the companies and have a much, much different perception of what is there. And so the combination of helping to inform legislation through both policy centers like mine at Stanford, but then also the Integrity Institute, um, hopefully gets us to better definitions even. And I think they filed an amicus brief um, for the Gonzalez case around this. Here is a recommender system and here is how it works. Um, it just, a lot of it does ultimately come down to the people in Congress who are writing the regulations uh, actually engaging with those folks to have a better perception. I think I would say, just to answer, I feel like I like, evaded your question by accident. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually do think there is some value to continue to explore the curation challenge because that is, that is the whole ball game and everybody realizes it. And that's why there is such um, visceral fighting in the context of the American political dynamic um, that a label is censorship or downranking is censorship. Even, you know, takedowns, of course, you can argue you know, quite plausibly the content is gone, no one can see it. But these other interventions that have been developed to create, 
you know, to enable the platforms to moderate, um, that's very much a focus of, uh, of a lot of public vitriol in communities that think that everything should be unmoderated. I do think that CDA reform that leverages this idea of recommendations and curation is valuable. It's more a matter of definitions. So we, we opened the day with Adam Bain articulating an optimist view about, about where AI will go. Um, I, I'm also a born optimist, and I want to end with, with an optimistic view. Um, help us understand the optimist case for disinformation and misinformation being less and less of a problem in, in the coming years. Well, they've always existed and we've always adapted, right? And that's what, again, when I was kind of joking around about the 1300s, uh, it actually is like, it's, it's, there's a lot of parallels, you know? Anybody could, all of a sudden, anybody could make a, a print a pamphlet, you know? And the pamphlets were full of bullshit. All that, you know, it was just, the flying words was the, uh, the, the, the term for them and they would just kind of went all over. It was like this weird, you know, virality on horseback. Um, obviously, the world is a little bit different now, but, you know, there has always been a period of societal adaptation to a new technology, so I don't think that it's, you know, the end of the republic. Um, but on the flip side, I do think that it is very hard to get past the offline kind of, you know, the online exacerbation of um, offline tensions in which people's inability to counter speak with each other or network with, you know, members of the other political party in the real world has these terrible implications. So a lot of my optimism actually comes more from like groups that are really prioritizing doing that bridge building work in the real world or thinking about bridge building curation algorithms online to recognize that um, it's it's not a problem of social media or technology so much as this socio-technical challenge that has to be dealt with in a much more holistic way. These are really complex issues. You make them understandable and digestible and, and leave me um, more hopeful for where we're going. So thank you so much for being here and taking part in this. Appreciate it. So